Hello, we're so glad you've tuned in today to Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Leo Alstrom. I'm the worship pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're currently in a series, The Greatest Adventure, and today we're exploring the different miracles that God did in and through Moses' life. Our God is powerful, and we pray today's message challenges you with that truth. Now here's Pastor Nick. Well, good morning. Um, and happy Father's Day to the dads out there um, and to the grandfathers out there. Um, and I even happen to know that there are some great-grandfathers, not just great-grandfathers because you're, you're just real good, um, but great-grandfathers because you're also old enough to have great-grandchildren. So congratulations, and, and we celebrate you all today. We're in the middle of a series called The Greatest Adventure. I'm the least likely pastor on any of our teaching teams to come and talk to you about adventures in life because I am adventure averse. I don't like very many, like that would be a, a disadvantage to me. I will tell you that 14 years ago, um, Susan and I, probably closer to 15 years ago now, were living in Daytona Beach, Florida. And, and the hallmark of Daytona Beach, Florida is a couple of events that happen throughout the year. You've got Beach Week, which is when thousands of college students descend on uh, in the city and, and go nuts for a week. And then you've got Bike Week, which is the same thing, except for it's just people on motorcycles. Like, so other than a couple of weeks out of the year where there's a million people in your city, most of the time it's just a lazy beach town. One of the things that distinguishes Daytona Beach from maybe other beaches in other places in Florida is that you can drive your car onto the beach, right? So people will park their cars and camp out and stay there for a while. We did not do this very often because, again, I'm adventure adverse. And I have this fear that this thing called the tide will come in and take your car away. And I don't know if that's covered by insurance because I didn't care to read the 4,000 pages about insurance to know for sure if your car is carried away by the ocean, would it be covered and would they buy you a new car in the moment? State Farm, I don't know. We're going to have to ask them. So we had some friends come to town and they wanted to do that. They wanted to drive onto the beach and park our car for a while. And so we did it and we played bocce ball and we hung out and we wore 70 SPF sunscreen because, you know, we didn't want to get too tan or burn and we had a great time. And when we went back to crank the car and pull off the beach, what we realized is that the tide that was coming in, although that was scary, the sand had gotten so deep around the wheel wells of that car, we could not move. And so there we are, and, and the reason I'm prompted to remember this story on Father's Day is because it was near Father's Day and Susan was pregnant with our first child. And since it would have been inappropriate to have her on hands and knees digging out a car, we put her in the driver's seat to rock back and forth to try to get us out of there. Susan, put it in reverse. Susan, put it in drive. And Matt, my friend and I, and are literally on hands and knees, burrowing like lemmings, trying to get the tires loose enough in order. And I don't know if that was the, maybe we should have been adding more sand. No one told us. No one teaches you this in driver's ed. Lindy is taking pictures. There are no, this is not viral. There are no videos or phone pictures. She's just literally standing to the side, laughing at us hysterically. And I'm losing my mind. And then the corner of my eye, I see these four dudes walking towards us and they are huge. <laughs> I mean, ripped like muscles as big as my waist. I mean, just mass. They are tanned. They were not worried about the SPF. They are oiled up and ready to go. On any other beach day, these are the guys that I would have stayed really far and clear from. Like, you don't want to be there. And I thought to myself in that moment, surely the Lord's anointed stand before me and they are going to come and literally lift our car out of the sand and take it back safely to the road. They did not. They passed us by. <laughs> this is not the story of the Good Samaritan. And then an elderly couple a sweet elderly couple 
who had no business helping us dig out that car, probably a great-grandfather himself, is on hands and knees helping us dig, and the woman is offering sweet words of encouragement until we could safely get our car out of the sand and back onto the road. Never again is what that went into the column of. Never again would I drive my automobile onto the sand of a beach, regardless of how many people came to visit us and celebrate the fact that you were indeed allowed to drive your car onto the beach sand. Sometimes things have to get harder before they can get better. And sometimes your rescue comes in a way that you don't anticipate. Sometimes the thing that you think is gonna be your ticket out of here, in fact, is not your ticket out of here. It's something very different. And so we're tracking along with the story of Moses in scripture. We're in the book of Exodus. Last week, we went through chapters three and four. We're gonna multiply that by two and go through chapters seven through 10 this week. It's the plagues. And if you were to ask any member of the communication team in the past couple of weeks leading up to this message, we just thought it oddly hysterical that on Father's Day, we're gonna be talking about the plagues. You certainly couldn't do that on Mother's Day. Nobody would wanna come in and say, happy Mother's Day, turn your passages of scripture into Exodus chapter eight. We're gonna talk about festering boils on skin. But you want to talk about frogs and gnats and lice? Well, we can go there on Father's Day, and that's what we'll do. In chapter 4, reluctantly, after arguing with God for several narratives over why he wasn't the one that should go, Moses finally, reluctantly agrees to go and approach Pharaoh with his brother Aaron in tow and ask for the release of his people so that they might journey into the wilderness and go worship. They're basically like, hey, can we go to camp this year, God? We want to go out to a place separate from where we normally live and do something a little different than we normally do. Our students, as Chase mentioned, just came back from camp. It wasn't at the wilderness. It was at the beach. They did not put the buses on it or in it. Like, it was a great week in so many ways. Israel is asking for permission to leave where they are and go someplace different so that they can engage in worship. And you'll find if you were to go back through Exodus chapters five and six that Pharaoh said no. He's like, who is this God that you're talking about? No, I don't know him. I don't know his name. You're not allowed to leave. And then he made matters worse. When it should have been getting better, Moses is there. I'm here. I'm arrived. I did what you told me to do. The people should now be sufficiently rescued. Pharaoh says no. In fact, if you've got time to rally around together and plan camp, then you have time to make more bricks. You're being lazy. And so he made it even harder on the people in that moment. So much so that the overseers and the workers in Israel came back to Moses like, what have you done to us? Now, because of you going and approaching Pharaoh, it's actually harder now. We have to make the same amount of bricks, but it's now harder to accomplish the task because you've now approached him. And he said, no, things often get harder before they get better. And your rescue often comes from a place that you don't anticipate. So in Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 1, we, we, we jump into this narrative. It says, then the Lord said to Moses. Moses who had just gone to him and said, hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Uh, uh, what, what, what is it that's happening? You, you literally told me to do this and I did it. And now things are worse. In chapter 6, God told him, he said, don't worry. Pharaoh is going to let you go, but not because he let you go but because of my mighty hand. 
Everything that God's doing is all about his power and his might. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. This phrase stands out because in that moment in Egypt, in, in the greater known world superpower that they were at the time, there was no one greater than Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh was God to his people. And so for God to say, see, I have made you like God. You're now in charge of Pharaoh. This is a big, bold statement. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. See, God was going to tell Moses what to say, and Moses was going to tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron was going to actually go and say it to Pharaoh. That's the role of the prophet throughout Scripture. They would hear a word from God and then deliver it to the people. It says in verse 2, you are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. And then in verse 3, you read some words that strike you. It says, but I, this is God talking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. That word signs is a good one. If you're a person that likes to underline words in your Bible and your notes, I invite you to do that. It's the Hebrew word oath, oath. It sounds like an oath or a promise that you make. It's literally a distinguishing mark, something that sets you apart, something that makes its case. This oath is something that separates Israel in this moment. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and though I multiply my signs, my marks, my effort, my activity, my distinguishing characteristics among you, these wonders in Egypt, he, verse four, will not listen to you. And then God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Sometimes your rescue comes in a way that you don't anticipate. So they begin with these signs, signs that we had seen before. And so, so they go in and, 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 and they throw the staff, the staff of God that's performing all this. They throw it on the ground. What does it become? A snake. Now I'm already checked out of this adventure because I don't do that. And the weird thing that happens in that moment is that all of Pharaoh's magicians and all of Pharaoh's sorcerers, they can perform the same task. So Moses and Aaron come in, they throw down their staff and it becomes this serpent, this snake. And then all of the other magicians, they're like, well, we can do that too. And so they throw theirs down and it becomes this swarm of snakes, which that's, that's worse than just one snake. Like more snakes is worse than one. And, and what happens? Moses's staff snake eats all the other staff snakes. Like, I don't know what's worse than seeing a snake. Seeing a snake eat is probably worse than seeing a snake. Like, it's this terrifying moment, but the symbol is clear. You see, the snake was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of an early Egyptian goddess who was said to control and to protect the land. It, it came to symbolize Pharaoh's power. So you know when you picture the walk like an Egyptian King Tut Pharaoh headdress, what's, what's on, a, a snake is peering out of the top of it as a symbol of his power. And so for the powerful staff of God to literally engulf the staffs of those magicians, this was a big, bold statement. Our God is bigger than you. Our God is more powerful than you. Our God will devour you. You need to relent and let our people go. And then we start a series of plagues that God pronounced on the land of Egypt. First, you get blood. The entire Nile River, the, the, the literal life's blood of the land became blood in the land. And of course, that meant that all the fish died and, and nothing was good and nothing was safe. And the people were literally digging creeks outside of the Nile Riverbed in order to find fresh water. They couldn't do it. 
And in that same moment, we also know that the magicians could do that same trick. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he still would not allow the people to go. And then frogs come up out of that, now back to a normal river, but it was previously all bloody, and frogs swarm the entire land. Well, the magicians and sorcerers can do that as well. And then you get to the third of the plagues. The Bible calls it gnats. Most of your Bible translations are gonna call it gnats that literally, like the dust of the earth, were filling the land. Bible translators tell us it's probably a little bit more akin to lice. All the parents in the room just had like PTSD. If your children have ever come home with a note that says there's lice in the classroom, Years and years ago, a couple of us were working a day camp at the Rolling Hills Franklin campus and all the kids were coming in the summer and we realized that one kid had come and then his parents had notified us that night that they in fact had taken him to the doctor at the end of the day and they had found head lice and so we were gonna have to follow all those protocols and alert all the parents and do the big deep clean and we had done all the things that we were supposed to do at the end of the day and I had gone home and I'm literally in the bathroom just feeling itchy and listen, There's way too much product in this hair for lice to ever want to cohabitate in it. I get that in my head, but something about the moment just felt strange. And so I'm literally huddled over in the bathroom and Susan's doing the check and she gasps for air. She's going through the back of my head and goes, (gasps) and I thought, what is it? (laughs) And she said, I didn't realize you had gotten so gray. (laughs) And I said, focus on the matter at hand. There was not head lice, thank the Lord. (laughs) Can you imagine that plague in the land? And scripture tells us really clearly in that moment that chapter eight, verse 19, the magicians and the sorcerers who had been able to do the previous two tasks, they come to Pharaoh and they say, whoa, this one, this is the finger of God. This one we can't reproduce. You see, in our lives, we can manipulate what's already there Maybe, maybe they could turn fresh water that was flowing into a, a bloody substance. Maybe they could call out all of the crazy gross frogs to come out of the river. Maybe they could do something out of something, but they couldn't create something out of nothing. This Pharaoh third plague is only the finger of God. Next plague, flies, flies everywhere. I don't like one housefly in my house, much less houseflies that are covering the whole land. I like a picnic as much as anybody, but y'all, those flies, Middle Tennessee, what's going on? They're everywhere. In chapter 8, if you go there towards the end, it says in verse 22 something specific that, be- that starts this pattern in the life of the plagues. It says that on that day, God is speaking, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. That's the settlement camp where the Israelite slaves lived. I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. This sign, this distinguishing mark, this oath, this will happen tomorrow. Interestingly enough, if you go back to that word distinction at the beginning of verse 23, what you realize is that the real translation is deliverance or ransom. That God, right from the beginning, is providing the kind of deliverance that his people need. And then there's a fifth plague. It's pestilence. It's this death of all the livestock in the land, but no animal. We start this pattern. No animal in Goshen died. Only the animals in the land of Egypt. 
Then we get boils, boils on the skin, festering boils. And we learn that that specifically, all the people are now, it's not just their livestock, it's not just their river, it's not just all these pests that are coming, but now they're medically affected by the plagues that God is sending. But it happens in Egypt, not in Goshen. And then in chapter seven, you get hail a hailstorm that literally affects the land. And in chapter nine, verse 13, the Lord says to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him over and over and over again, Moses goes back to Pharaoh and confronts him with the sage, let the people go. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go that they may come worship me. It's a hint of our purpose in life. When God sets us free, it's so we can worship. It says in verse 14, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. It's like God had been relenting this whole time. I will send the full force of my plagues against you and your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off of the earth. Even in what we assume are the biggest disasters that have ever happened, there is always an element of the mercy of God. I could have wiped you out. I brought you into this world, I will take you out. And yet, he's relented from that level of disaster. It says in verse 16, but I have raised you up. That Hebrew phrase means spared your life. I've spared your life for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in Goshen? No. In Egypt? No. In all the earth. When God sets us free, it's so we can worship. When he displays his power, it's so that we will know him and his name will be proclaimed in all of the earth. Eighth plague comes, it's locusts. I don't really know what that would look like, but we have these things in Tennessee called the cicadas. We've been talking about that for the last six months. I've yet to see one. Maybe they're all over at your house and sparing us over in the Creve Hall, but somehow or another, I keep hearing that they're coming. I imagine that's very similar to the plague. The locusts devour everything, all the crops, all the plants. They disturb everything that would have made Egypt great, and here they come. And then finally, number nine, the plague of darkness plague that prompts Pharaoh to go to Moses and to beg them to leave. And this time he's going to permit the women and the children to go with them, but he wants to withhold the livestock. Why would he want to hold the Israelite livestock? Well, because all their livestock are dead. And, And so you can't take your livestock with you because that's the only livestock that we've got left. But because Moses refuses to leave without the herds, Pharaoh once again reneges on the promise. And then we teeter on the final plague, the plague that we celebrate at Easter, the plague that we look at at Passover, the plague that we're actually gonna hold off on and talk about next week if you come back and continue the adventure series with us. But these first nine, they're terrible occurrences in the life of a country. And the people, can you imagine the Egyptians had to be asking why? Like, why is this? Do you ever ask why? Like, why did we just walk through 18 months of COVID-19 and all the things that people think about and explore and try to figure out? Like, why are, why, why? Why did Egypt, why, why plagues? Sometimes I'm tempted, especially on a day like today when it's Father's Day, look, why are we talking about plagues on Father's Day? Well, in so many other creative elements of my life, I'm not asking why, I'm just saying, well, hey, why not? Well, why not plagues? 
Ultimately, the answer, and it's in your notes this morning, you can follow along this giant run-on sentence that explains why I think plagues. First of all, plagues in response to the sinful and stubborn oppression. Sometimes we understand that the disasters that go on around us are just a product of sin in the world and the fall of man, and they are a mighty act of God looking at us and explaining to us and reminding us of who he is in that moment. So sometimes, yes, plagues in response to sinful acts of stubborn oppression. Yeah, sometimes we just learn better the hard way. God had told Moses, he had hinted to Moses the fact that this was gonna happen even last week in the call narrative in chapter three, verse 19, he says, but I know, God looks at Moses and said, but I know, I know in advance, he knows everything. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless unless a mighty hand compels him. So God responds, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders. <laughs> that sounds like it will be good, but it's not. All the wonders that I will perform among them and after that, he will let you go. A lot of times we associate the word wonders with the idea of miracles. There's no Hebrew word for miracles in the Old Testament. We get lots of signs and we get lots of wonders. And the challenge was that is I often associate the idea of miracles with good things. God healed, God provided, God released, God restored. Like all the good things that God does, those are miraculous displays of his power. But what about the other side? In this passage of scripture, we get both. Lord says, yeah, sure. In response to sinful and stubborn oppression, yeah, the plagues are coming, but, but it's in order to provide a rescue. It says in chapter six, verse six, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The plagues, the disasters, the difficulties, yeah, in response to the sinful oppression of Egypt, but in order to provide a rescue plan. And also in order that the nations would know. It says in chapter seven, verse five, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring all the Israelites out of it. Start to finish, we didn't just get the grace of God to go out into all nations and to baptize men to become followers of Jesus Christ just when he got on the scene. Right from the beginning, God has had a plan for the nations. And you, you read about it in scripture in Exodus chapter seven, that the nations will know. In 1 Kings chapter eight, verse 60, it says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know, not just the Israelite people, but all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Psalm chapter 83, Verse 18, let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Let the nations know, passage after passage after passage, we get reminder after reminder after reminder that although God selected this nation, this people, this group as his personal possession, he did it so that he could use them to make his name great among the nations. It's not just for us. It's so that the nations would know what gets your attention the most about God's power? Is it those feel-good miracles? When, when, when the cancer is cured, when, when, when the bill is paid, when COVID is over? Is it just the, the feel-good miracles? Or is it also the terrible might? 
is it also the terrible might? This, this, this repeated pattern in Scripture of God's outstretched arm, whether it was going to bring deliverance or disaster, both were symbolic of his power. While we often tend to view the miracles as only the happy things that God does, healing, the providing, the, the comforting, the casting, the delivering truth be told, his awesome power is not limited to that. And neither should be my awe. We don't stand only in awe of a God who does good, amazing things. We stand in awe of a God who everything he does is for a good and amazing reason, even when we don't understand it. Why plagues? In response to sinful and stubborn oppression, yes. But in order to provide a rescue, so that all the nations would know that God alone is distinct in all the earth. Verse 14, chapter nine, he will send the full force of his plagues so that all the officials and all the people would know that there is no one like him in all the earth. Plague after plague after plague, God demonstrated his supremacy over the false gods of the Egyptians the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, the the God of the land, the God of fertility, the God of health, the God of their present reality was trumped by the power of the Almighty. The replicable plagues, the ones that the magicians could do, along with the unreplicable plagues, the ones that they could not manufacture, were an opportunity for the people to know that there is a God and that he supersedes all other gods. He is supreme. And cycle after cycle, if you read through these passages of scripture, it's a long text for today, and I invite you to go back and read every single portion of it this week. You'll be startled by the running themes, God's outstretched arm, Moses' request for the people to go and worship, and then this series of moments where scripture says Pharaoh's heart was hardened, says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then those moments that we stand up and say, why? When it seems like God himself hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Cycle after cycle after cycle, this is what we know. The hardened heart of Pharaoh only intensified the evil that was present in the world, and it alerts us as the audience, as the reader, that nothing can stop our God. When the difficulty gets bigger, it only provides reason for us to understand that God is better. This whole idea, this this exchange following the the livestock when they all died and whether or not they could go during that three-day darkness period. Pharaoh also threatened to kill Moses. So so, so in that moment, the, the, the start of chapter 11, God says, I'm bringing one more wonder. They get to the end of the ninth plague and not only does Pharaoh say, hey, you need to get out of my sight or I will kill you. This has got to be the moment, God, when you're going to provide that final deliverance. I can see you coming with all your muscles over the horizon. Here it is. God says, nope, I'm gonna bring one more disaster in the life of Egypt and then Pharaoh will let you go. Scripture, we see pattern after pattern, this idea of was hardened, this this static picture of a heart that was already so staunchly against God. 
And then you see that it was hardened even more by his own pride. And then it says that God hardened, turned him over to the hardness of his own heart. You notice that didn't happen until after the fifth plague. If you read this, although God said in chapter three that he himself was gonna do it, the moment didn't come until after the fifth time that Pharaoh had had opportunity. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, extending the grace of God, and then finally God says, okay, fine. I'll just give you over to the hardness of your own heart. You know, Pharaoh in these passages of scripture is, is a big archetype of evil in the world. In fact, it's not the same Pharaoh as before. You, you get that, right? This, this Pharaoh that now Moses is 80 years old, his brother Aaron is 83 years old. In this moment, 80-year-old Moses, the, the Pharaoh that he stands before is not the same Pharaoh that said, hey, kill all the baby boys. It's not the same Pharaoh that says, yeah, you can bring that kid that you found out of the river to come in to live in my palace. But Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh, and moment after moment after moment, the evil in the world continued to increase, which only gave reason to increase our faith and our trust in Almighty God. The wrath of the plagues and how they intensified only pointed that more intensely to the mercy of God. When you get to that moment in chapter 11, when God pronounces that the death angel's gonna come and that the, the firstborns are gonna be lost, it says in chapter 11, verse six, there's gonna be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. The plagues kept getting worse. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The wrath of the plagues only pointed more intensely to the mercy of God. And did you know that even the awful things that we go through, even the challenges that we encounter, even the difficulties that we face are always purposed always purposed to display God's glory so that people might see God. Ecclesiastes, not Exodus, Ecclesiastes, it's a wisdom book we attribute to King Solomon giving us this idea of what life really means. And we ask, we ask what does life mean? We ask what the purpose of this is. We, we ask why these things happen. What's the meaning of it all? In chapter seven of Ecclesiastes, it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. When you get your answer, be excited. When you recognize the miracle, when it's the feel-good moment of God providing deliverance, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. When the miracle is good, when the might is scary, we can know that God made both so that we could see and better recognize his glory. Susan and I, we relate a lot to John chapter nine. Um, our little boy, Simon, you guys know, you love and support us so well, um, has cystic fibrosis. 
And we landed on John 9 when he was born, this whole passage of scripture where the disciples are walking along with Jesus and they, they spy this man that was born blind, born blind. That was different than somebody who just became blind later in life. In fact, one of the messianic predictions, one of the prophecies that they knew that the Messiah would come and be able to deliver is that somebody that was born blind, not somebody that was like got blind later in life because there were healers, there were prophets, there were other people that could come and intervene in those moments. And, and they had seen miracles where somebody who became blind was was now made able to see. But the idea of somebody being born blind, only the Messiah could come and take care of that. And so they find this guy, they know that he was born blind and they had this picture of any sort of affirmity in life being caused by our sin under oppression, the fall of man. So they asked Jesus, they're like, hey, so wait a minute, in this moment, this guy's born blind, who sinned? Was it him? I mean, because he was just a baby after all. So like really what was going on there? Or was it his parents? And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Not that they were sinless, but in this moment, hey, it's not related to either one of their sin, but ultimately this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Festering boils all over our skin so that the works of God might be displayed. Hailstorms so that the works of God might be displayed. You as a people being spared all that disaster so that the works of God might be displayed. Death of all the livestock, even death of the firstborn. Huh, there's an image. You know, we celebrate that at Easter. Jesus, firstborn among many brothers, sacrificing his life so that we may live. All of that so that the work of God might be displayed. When you're trying to dig yourself out of your difficulty, God shows up with a rescue that you don't see coming. And it may be after God himself made the matter worse so that you could more clearly see his goodness. Why plagues in Egypt? To glorify God and accomplish his great plan. Why difficulty in your life? To glorify God and accomplish his great plan so that you may know him and so that others may know him and so collectively we can worship him. You know, the adversities that we face in life, it, it seems like the only result is that our hearts may harden. When the adversities in life come that tempt you to harden your own heart, they really are an opportunity to deepen your faith. When the, when the challenges come, when the relationships dissolve, when others are angry, when you find yourself in calamity, when the results are not good, when the plagues befall, yeah, our hearts might harden, but ultimately it's an opportunity for our faith to deepen for us to trust a God who's bigger than all those things and whose promises always come true. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to look at passages of scripture that are difficult to, to skim over so quickly, God. Um, this narrative of what you did in the life of your people. Disaster after disaster, plague after plague was opportunity after opportunity for people to put their faith more squarely in you and to trust that you alone could provide a deliverance. 
that it wouldn't be because Moses was smart. It wouldn't be because Aaron was well-spoken. It wouldn't be because Israel was numerous. It wouldn't be because they rebelled. It wouldn't be because they were strong. It would ultimately be only because you were there. And maybe we need that reminder today too, God, that you're there and that you're bigger than anything we face. In fact, everything that we do face is an opportunity for us to recognize who you are. Help us to see you, God, and help us to understand the circumstances that we face in life through you, God, so that we might declare to you, God, that we will follow you, God, wherever you lead, knowing that you alone can get us there. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and to whom we sing today. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, which is part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can also find great podcasts like Making History, a parenting podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go podcast, and so much more. If you want to learn more about what's going on here at Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect with us. We're thankful for you. God bless.